This is a Federal News Network podcast. Nearly every agency would see more money in 2023 under the Biden administration's top-line request, but it also shows the increasing pressure of the so-called discretionary spending as mandatory spending expands. As part of our ongoing analysis of the skinny budget, we turn to former federal budget official, now the managing director of Grant Thornton Public Sector, Doug Crisitello. Doug, good to have you back. Hi, Tom. Great to be here. So what are your observations on this? Uh, $1.5 trillion, everything seems to be up, up and up. Yeah. So in the near term, there is a big focus on increasing spending, both domestically and on our defense and security budgets, with an eye toward trying to limit the increases in our annual budget deficits by also proposing revenue increases, primarily by levying taxes on higher wealth individuals and corporations. But there is a lot included on the budget around a, uh, a moniker, a new slogan, if you will, called building a better America. Yeah. And so what are yeah. some of the elements and what are some of the agencies that would be pulled into that effort? So uh, a broad range of issues are addressed from climate change to pandemic preparedness to quite a few items that last year were characterized as build back better, right? Doing things like cutting costs for health care and child care, making housing and college more affordable. And the budget also builds on some of the legislative successes from 2021, including the bipartisan infrastructure law and uh, also the American Rescue Plan Act, which provided a host of pandemic and economic aid to, uh, you know, to get us back on track. Yeah. And I guess the big question then, you know, how accurate are their assumptions? Because you've got a lot of dynamic forces at work in a proposal like this. When you increase taxes, there's always concomitant effects elsewhere in the economy. And then there's the factor of, of inflation, which is up and down, up right now. And from your experience in judging the dynamics of budgets, does this all look like it could work? in terms of the inflation that's ahead and the effect of tax increases as they spread throughout the economy and different sectors adjust. Yeah, it's a complex analysis to determine the impact that this particular mix of fiscal policies will have on our economy. And the Congress and president in deliberating the budget can only go so far in fighting inflation. I mean, that is a consistent theme that we're hearing from both sides, right? We need to fight inflation. It's it's on the rise. And understandably, right, several things have happened. There's a war in Europe now, so higher fuel prices and hopefully a receding pandemics. And we have all this pent-up demand for goods and services in the aftermath of a series of huge U.S. government fiscal responses. And and the world order seems to just be readjusting right now. So what can the federal government do to fight inflation? Well, fiscal policy is just one part of it. And I think it's actually a relatively modest part. The Federal Reserve Board is responsible for monetary policy. And they have a specific mandate to keep both inflation and unemployment low. And without going into a a bunch of detail on how monetary policy is conducted, it's important to understand uh, that the Fed's action have a 
profound influence on economic activity across the country and ultimately impacts inflation much more significantly than anything that could be done on the fiscal side of the ledger. We're speaking with Doug Crisatello, Managing Director of Grant Thornton Public Sector, and especially the Fed has an effect on interest rates, which then eventually backs up to Treasury rates, which then also backs up to what the country is paying for its debt service. And as that right. rises, then that's sort of a new growth element relative to the uh, the non-discretionary and the discretionary spending. Right. And, you know, at the risk of sounding like chicken little here, I really am a broken record on this topic, because if you look at long term expectations about interest payments, it just becomes such a significant portion of the budget as you, as we move you know to future decades the congressional budget office did a fascinating report last year where they pointed out that interest payments alone would total about 60 trillion dollars over the next 30 years and would take up half of all federal revenues by 2050 that that's astounding so it, it, under current policies interest payments are expected to rise to a level where they will surpass all discretionary spending by 2043 and be an even larger budget item than Medicare or Social Security during that decade in the 2040s. Really something we need to be paying serious attention to. Right. So that another billion or few for agriculture, IT, or for the cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency is kind of a small potatoes matter then in that context. Yeah, it it really is. And um, discretionary spending has become such a small portion of the budget, really the work that the appropriation committees do. Uh, The portion of the budget that's on, on autopilot is just incredible you know if if we look back and the trends are unmistakable right over the last 50 years mandatory spending has steadily increased as a share of the economy not not looking at it in 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 dollar terms and discretionary spending is actually falling quite a bit it's about half its level now than it was 50 years ago and Mandatory spending is, you know, more than two and almost three times greater. So that's the dynamic that's playing out. And as I said, interest is slated to grow going forward, which, you know, that might be okay if revenues were keeping pace, but they're not. So this is that structural budgetary imbalance that we've been talking about through the years. You know, we're just not on a sustainable path. In the meantime, though, we do have that discretionary portion of slightly north of $1.5 And just give us the top line on what the priorities are that federal agencies actually can have some control over because the uh, the deficits and the sustainability trend are kind of beyond their pay grade. Yeah, it, it it's still important, right? We're still sphere. You're absolutely right. In any anything that totals well over a trillion dollars is very very significant and discretionary spending 
you know, is, is approaching, uh, you know, I think before long we'll be, we'll be at $2 trillion. So it's, it, it is a huge amount of money. And the Biden administration is directing it to its policy priorities, right? It's not, it, it's not surprising. More money going to defense, education, uh, public health, health care, you know, and very smartly pandemic preparedness. So you, you, I, I think it's interesting that, you know, some of the reports that I've read on the budget characterize it as a pretty significant pivot from last year. I think it's a bit of a pivot. I think it reflects some of the political realities going into the midterm elections, but it's quite consistent with what was proposed last year, right? A real commitment to sort of building up the uh, working class, imposing additional taxes on the wealthiest in corporations, doing things like addressing climate change, strengthening our defense. You know, there's lots of so, yeah, it's easy to talk about the new, the near term. It's unmistakable how there are you know, near term policy priorities, but a failure to address the long term. And look, the Biden administration isn't alone in doing this. I haven't seen a single budget this century that addresses these long term issues, in, 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 at least on the mandatory side of the budget. Right. And nor has Congress for that matter either. Right. Right. I mean, there was a serious run at it during the Obama administration. It was very focused on discretionary spending, though. Right. You'll remember that. I mean, this is sort of, sort of where, you know, the sequesters came into play and this notion of a bipartisan budgetary agreement, a budget commission would work to uh, develop proposals that the Congress would pass to address discretionary spending over time. Yeah, it didn't materialize, though. And you know, not too long after we find ourselves in in a pandemic where we had to spend five trillion in additional borrowed dollars. And so the trajectory of these problems has steepened, if anything, in recent years. Doug Cristatello is Managing Director of Grant Thornton Public Sector. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. 
She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I 
talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.